This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. Welcome back a um, very long-time friend of the Media Week podcast. It has been a, a few weeks, a few years since he's been with us, though. Michael mm. Adardo, welcome back to Media Week. Hello, James. Wonderful to be able to uh, speak to you. Now, mm. we've, we're going to be on topic talking about your new podcast. I'm going to throw in a few cheeky other questions about... Um, what you're up to and what's happening in the USA this week. But, um, right. We'll start on topic. Now, you're, you're um, a key member of the Televisionaries team. Tell me a little bit about Televisionaries. Um, so it's, uh, it's the podcast uh, that has essentially been born out of the, the, um, the former Fairfax, now nine newspapers, television section. So the, it's driven by the guide and the green guide, but some of the people that you'll hear on it are people also from the spectrum sections of the paper. So there are um, of, of both the age and the Sydney morning Herald. Um, it's essentially what it has in common, I think with the print sections is that the key thing about our, our TV print sections and terrifyingly, I can't even believe I'm about to own up to this um, uh, February of this year, just gone was my 20th year at the Sydney, the beginning of my 20th year at the Sydney morning Herald. Um, those TV sections, we've always, we refer to them as critical guides. Like we always say the guide is a critical guide. And so the key thing about the guide isn't that it's a television listing, but that it is a, it's a kind of method of distillation. It helps the reader or the viewer find their way to the program. And I think that's what the podcast is about as well. The, the idea is that if you put Debbie Inker and myself or, um, you know, Paul Kalina, um, you know, Louise Rugendike, if you kind of plonk us all in a box and you do your sums, between us, there's something like a hundred and I don't even want to say however many years of, of television reviewing in the box with you. So it, I think we our kind of claim, I guess, is that we've all been television critics for, you know, either a number of years, a decade standing, two decades, some of us three decades standing. So um we have a level of understanding of television and a measure of love of television um, that kind of comes comes from that. What I like about the podcast episodes I've heard, and I must say, unlike most of the things I do, it is it sounds produced. It's quite snappy. It, mm. it goes from topic. It has different subjects, and um, it doesn't go for too long. I think you try and wrap it up in about half an hour. Is that right? It is that I think that we so I think there's a couple of things in play. One of them is absolutely um, there's a level of um, of production that goes with it, and I think that's because if you look broadly at podcasting, um, I think it's a crowded space. Um, it's also a space where um, uh, where everybody seems to want to launch a podcast. Only a few weeks ago, there was that very funny you know promo from a whole bunch of high profile Australians pleading with people not to launch podcasts. Ironically, more than half the people in the promo actually did have their own podcasts, which I thought was an incredibly weird thing to do. Um, and I think the two key things are in that crowded space, I guess you have to come at it with production value. The Herald and The Age, I think, have taken a position that we don't just blast out a 1,000 podcasts. I think every podcast that's been launched off those mastheads has been really carefully curated. And I know that as a staff member, internally there is a process um through which we uh, have a whole bunch of options and they are filtered down so those decisions i think are made really carefully when you do that i think you have to kind of bring a level of production um 
to it. But I think also there's a sense that people don't have an infinite amount of time. And the last thing you kind of want is people who think they know a whole lot about something, you know, banging on about it for hours on end as though somehow your time as the listener isn't precious. So I think we've got a very conscious sense that 25 minutes is a really polite amount of time to intrude in someone's day. Because not only, it's not just about us. They no doubt probably have another podcast they want to listen to, a newspaper or a website they want to read and a whole bunch of stuff they either want to watch or do. So you sort of, I don't, I think it's sort of, there's an arrogance in competing or kind of taking over someone's time. I think 25 minutes is a really polite chat with a few funny old mates. And then I think after that, you've outstayed, you're welcome. So I think it's really, I think you do. I think that's, that's a fair thing. I think you just kind of go, people don't want you there all night. Well, they're not date. They're not dating us. They're not married to us. They're popping in for a coffee with us. And a lot of the coffees I've popped in on in my life, I'm well and truly done it 25 minutes. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, and, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the good things about the explosion of podcasts is that it has forced the, um, the hosts and the podcasters to be a little bit briefer and more succinct, mm-hmm. and myself included, and get to the point, and, yeah, as you say, not waste too much time. Now, I think one, one quick thing I'll say, though, I think there is space for long-form podcasting. I think the long-form podcast is like a 3,000-word Kate McClymont read <laughs> in, in the Saturday Herald. It's compelling, but it's, it's not something that we would ever try to do on page seven of the Herald in 200 words. You can't, the same story can't be done both ways. And I think long podcasts are lovely things. They're lovely things to lay down on a weekend with and listen to. But I think when you're coming as we are weekly and you're kind of talking about something like television, which as you know, is kind of high turnover, fast moving. It's a very busy market. There's a thousand things to talk about at any one moment. I don't think you can afford to sort of just sit around and, you know, kind of wallow on, on something for too long. I think you've kind of got to understand that the, me- the medium you're talking about is, is fast and quick and, and, you know, and sort of quickly consumed. Yeah. Um, the podcast televisionary seems to have been received very well. I think for much of May it ranked number one as the most mm-hmm. popular TV and film podcast in the market in Australia. Mm-hmm. So what sort of feedback are you get? Look, I mean, I kind of, it's a weird thing. I mean, there, there are a lot of, <laughs> you know what, listener, like reader comments, listener comments. They're sort of like a, I don't know that psychologically it's the best place to throw yourself. I feel like there's a lot of very positive um, uh, feedback. I think um, when you listen to that feedback, you, if you're smart, you kind of learn from it. So where people say to you, I don't want once over lightly, I want more thoughtful analysis you try to give them that when people kind of say to you i want i kind of they kind of want honesty i feel like a lot of i think the reaction we've mostly got is that it doesn't feel like it's um uh none of us are coming at it from a scripted space i'm not sitting there with 15 pages of notes sometimes louise is asking me a question i've not heard until she's asked the question Mm. and you know and so i have to answer in the truest way that I can with the knowledge that I have at my disposal. Um, so I think that, I mean, I feel like, you know, um, uh, the reaction from listeners has been incredibly positive actually, and maybe more positive than you would have thought. Cause I mean, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. There's a bunch of platforms that we all use now. And some of those are unfriendlier than others. Um, <laughs> Twitter particularly is like a space where you just think, oh, man, like really is this, you had one thing to do all day and all you did was write 140 mean letters 
and aim it at somebody. Um, but now I think people kind of feel like, and I think that's part of part of the the idea of podcasting. I feel like it it is sort of conversational, particularly this kind of a podcast. This is really having a cup of coffee with a few mates, trying to solve one big problem and talk about a whole bunch of things that you're watching on TV. I think you have to kind of be a bit free and easy and a bit flexible. I think that, you know, the more people feed back to us, the more we subtly, you know, shape what we do to kind of tailor it to their needs or their interest. Tell us a little bit about what, what you bring to the podcast. I mean, you're obviously based in the US, so you get to see, you know, in, in a way you're at the television capital, I guess, aren't you, over there? Um, I sort of, I mean, there's a wonderful line of Julia Morris's that I'll steal right now, which is... <laughs> I've been in this business 300 years, James. Um, uh, I guess I think the key thing that, I mean, I, I think what I bring isn't that different to what, you know, someone like Debbie Enker brings, which is that, I mean, I've reviewed television. I'm not going to tell you how many years <laughs> could date me, but it's, it's, I mean, it's like I was a cadet journalist in the early 1990s, late 1980s 30 years we're talking 30 years so i reviewed tv for 30 years debbie enka is younger and lovelier than i am um uh but no less experienced she's you know i mean paul kalina is the same i feel like what we all have is that we um we have a long history of reviewing television so it's that sort of thing where you know do you how do you understand a story as a journalist or how do you understand a program as a reviewer and in your, do you understand it well because you can read a book or look at wikipedia and know what happened in 1992 or is it because i can tell you that actually hand on heart i was standing there in 1992 i remember one of the things i feel like like you know channel 10 for example had a couple of rough years recently and in that reporting i remember bringing into that reporting some of my recollections of standing in the sound stage at north ride in 19 in the early 1990s when 10 went into receivership the first time so you kind of that you can't that's that's irreplaceable i think that's kind of an insight that you that's a perspective that you can't get by simply reading how it was reported at the time the fact is i remember standing in the room i remember the color of the wall and i remember the expressions on the faces of the people who were talking about receivership. So you, I think that's what you bring in the end. You, you, if you have something to say and you have a perspective that's helpful, you know, no one's obligated to believe me or listen to me or take my advice. But I've, I think I've always taken a very, as the Herald and the Age always have, taken a very kind of academic approach to TV criticism. So there's a, you know, there's a, we have a very, the central, the, the, the heart of that, the best way to describe that to you is that I remember um, a former guide editor, John Kazimer, um, had written some guidelines around television criticism um, for people who were thinking of becoming television critics for the guide. And one key sentence I've always hung on to, which was it said, the first question you ask yourself is, do you like the program? And then you take the answer to that question and you push it to the side. It might appear in your review, but it probably won't because the question you're actually being asked isn't whether you like the program. The question you're being asked is whether the program's good. And there are many things I could tell you that I was not a fan of that were brilliant because you have an ability, I think, if you're a good critic, to understand the difference between what merely pleases you and what is actually substantial and has merit, regardless of that. I don't really enjoy opera, but I've been to extraordinary operas 
and I understand the difference between the two emotional reactions. Sure. Um, people who've listened this far in the podcast might understand that uh, this work from home, it's not a soundproof studio I'm in today. There's a bit of banging going on outside. I was a little worried myself because I'm obviously in Los Angeles where we currently have protests and riots and there are periodic police sirens coming off my terrace. And I did think, should I get up mid-sentence and run and shut the terrace door? Right, right. Um, sure. Now, your title is culture, uh, culture editor at large at the Sydney Morning Herald, I think. Yes. Um, so that you've got a pretty big remit. I mean, how do you do the little simple things like finding time to actually watch the shows? Because I guess you've, you've got to be up to speed with a fair amount of content, don't you? you do. Make some harsh decisions about what goes no, no, not at all. Because the thing, I mean, I will say this I have always said this about the so called golden age of television, this the new golden age of television. There are actually many, many, many more TV shows. There are almost certainly not many more great TV shows. <laughs> that even though there's a bazillion new shows, most of it has come in the fat middle. It hasn't really come at the creamy top. We still, I feel like, you know. I mean, Netflix is now a player and Amazon is a player. All these people are players. But actually, at the end of the day, there's still really only, at any given moment in time, there's still really only 10 extraordinary pieces of television that matter. Um, uh, how do I do it? Look, I watch a lot of TV. I write about what I watch. I watch the pilot of absolutely everything. And uh, then I have to make a choice of whether I stay with a show professionally or I stay with a show or I invest in other shows personally. I have my favourite shows I like to watch that aren't work-related. Um, uh, so, um, and also sometimes you divide the load. Sometimes you, I know that within the structure of, of how we operate the Guide and the Green Guide, there are people like Craig Matheson and Debbie Enka and Paul Kalina. And when you're aware that certain writers are focused on certain shows and they've developed an expertise around those shows. Debbie's very good, for example. She knows MasterChef Inside Out. I don't feel obligated then to know MasterChef Inside Out because I feel like in our expertise pool, we have somebody we can lean on for that. Um, there are other things that I do have to make kind of my, my field of expertise. So I think you share the load a bit. But also, I mean, my just to describe my desk, I have a giant monitor. Um, but my second monitor isn't a monitor. My second monitor, which is the same size as my monitor, is in fact a Samsung TV. Um, and as weird as it sounds, on a low volume, the TV runs constantly. It's either on a channel, on a program, watching something, binging on something. Because even while I'm working and I've got an eye on the screen, I've always got a sly eyeball on the second screen. So I think you just learn to, you learn to watch a lot of stuff quickly. Can I ask you about TV critics? In the US, if you're a US TV critic mm -hmm. uh, reporting for a US audience, are you looked after any better than if you're a TV critic in Australia? Um, probably not. I think, well, it sort of, look, it sort of depends. America is, a, LA is a, I mean, we're really talking about LA there, I guess, or yeah. all the LA-based critics who kind of write for national publications. Um, when you say, it depends, I guess, what you mean by looked after. You don't, you know, I mean... It's not quite the same. The Australian market is small, so there's like a high level of personalisation in that market. So you find TV networks only really have to deal with a half a dozen people. Um, uh, so they will, they're able to deal with those people in a more hands-on or a more personal way. Um, in America, 
you know, you kind of have, you probably, you probably have 20 or 25 people in that core pool, which are like the Michael Osiello's or the Emily Vanderwerf's kind of these sort of really key um, voices in that, that chorus. Um, uh, but there is a bigger pool in America, which uh, kind of is an organisation called the Television Critics Association, which sort of has about 200 people that go to TCA events. Um, and that pool is much larger and it's full of freelancers and it's full of, you know, it's kind of like all of those organisations, a couple of randoms, a couple of crazies, like it's a, it's a hodgepodge of a thing. And it, I don't necessarily think there's much more in the way of hands-on um, access i think because of the scale of america um it is uh there there is a more it's more of a machine there is more structure to the system there are tca events twice a year i mean how they'll play out post coronavirus i don't know but um there are tca events twice a year that um uh, in which there are panels for shows there is a there's a there's a giant structure to that business um uh that um that I think just makes the machine run a little better, but you don't necessarily feel any more loved. And you know what? You kind of don't need to, and you kind of don't want to. I've, I've often said, um, I was once asked by a TV network programmer in Australia, what the basic difference between Australia and America, the television businesses was. And I said, the simplest way to put it is American television is big and business. And Australian television is small and personal. So in Australia, if I write a review that is savage about a show, I've got a programmer and a network head of publicity who will send me a cross email and I've got two months of damage control to navigate while they get over their crossness. In America, if I write a review that is cutting, that cuts down a CBS new release, I have the head of comms for CBS International back on my phone tomorrow not interested in the bad review because she has 25 other shows to launch and she just moves on to the next one. So there's a, there's a lack of, of personalness that actually I, I find as a journalist really refreshing. It's just a machine here. It's a business and they get, and they get on with it and they're very good at getting on with it. And I think as a journalist, that's really liberating. It means you can just speak your mind and the system just, if you didn't like a show, they go, fantastic. Here's the next one. Tell me if you like that one. You know, it just rolls on. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it reminds me of what David Stratton used to say about reviewing movies of people he knew. He said mm. it was terrible. He just didn't want to do it because it puts you in an awkward situation. Um, and, and nobody likes criticism, you know. No, no, not just honesty, the hard. No one takes it well. Honestly, like, the thing is this, I mean, in the end, honesty is hard with people that you know. I will say one key thing, though, and I've always said this about young journalists, because there's a real, there's a sort of flippant ease when it comes to criticism, you can be as smart arsey as you like. Um, and there was a critic, this often used to come up with reviewers at the guide, you know, it's all well and good for you to shoot down that, that, that one-off documentary that you thought was a bit shit um, in 200 words of pithy, comical, whatever. But that program, it's, it's 45 minutes of my life. For somebody else, it's been three and a half years. So their relationship with it is very different and I do think as a critic, you have to be mindful of that. It doesn't have to control what you say or shape your opinion or make you say something you don't want to say. But it does mean that every time you say something complimentary, it's those words come easy. Every time you have to say something harsh and critical, 
those words should they should go onto the page letter by letter and syllable by syllable because the most critical of criticism you have to be incredibly careful with you have to know that you're right i've always said that face to face matters i can't criticize anybody or anything in any way that i can't stand toe to toe and explain why i made the choices that i made you know on that particular note I have an email I still haven't answered from the director of something who questioned, asked me about a review, which I have to, and it's in my to-do list because it's a thing. When those emails come in, I'm like, I have to answer this. I can't run away from someone's questions. I have to find a half an hour, sit down, take a considered thought about what they're saying and address the questions they ask because it's not, it's not as easy. um, It's not so easy. And I will say the person who taught me that hilariously at the age of, 20 was none other than Maria Venuti, who when I was on the Daily Telegraph during page 13, I took a very smart arsey pot shot at and she rang me the next day and she said, you know, I'm actually a person and you know what, I read that and it hurts. And I was like, you know what, you're right. You're actually right. I was like, let me take you to lunch to make up for it. So I did. Yeah. I'll ask you one more quick thing about TV, then a a little, we'll finish up with a little bit about um, life in the US. this week. Um, so just tell me on, has the growth of the streaming platforms, if you like, has it, I mean, we were sort of headed global anyway, but has it, has it made the business a lot more global, maybe quicker than it would have happened? Um, look, like we in, all get to watch nearly everything at the same time now. We do, we do. I think we were more or less there anyway. You know, Fox, for example, in Australia, Fox tells day and date, marketing strategy predates the streaming era and i think that's a really good example of one one broadcaster of many worldwide who are really conscious of of um of the value in bringing content really quickly to market and i think also i feel like that the notion of closing those distribution delays um was the byproduct of the piracy war it was a real it was a strategy around managing you know how we you know how we kind of narrow the opportunity for somebody to chase down content illegally if it can be serviced to them legally in the same amount of time. Where the streaming has kind of globalised the market, I think what streaming has done um, isn't necessarily a great thing in every way. I think that when you break down some of those global structures and you sort of globalise the business, you lose you do lose some of the nuance of the personal. You do lose some of the local and the individual. And I don't know that everybody watching one show globally is better than everybody watching one of 10 shows individually in their own space and in their own shared experience. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of those. I love the streamers. I love streaming. I love the convenience, but I'm not one of those people that's kind of religiously convinced that the, the coming of the streaming age is the greatest thing that ever happened to television. I think it's actually, it's breaking down elements of the business that are, um, that are important. It's, it's kind of brought an algorithmic thought to commissioning that is not always the healthiest thought just because, you know, we all like X doesn't mean we all like Y and I'm uncomfortable that it's a computer algorithm that wants to tell a programmer that and not the programmer's own instinct or the programmer's own ability to listen you know if you look at what's happened in the u.s in the last you know week listening is at the heart of that i think the art of the art of criticism like the art of journalism like the art of living 
they are all they're all exercises in listening. And I think the more that we listen, the more that we know. And I I think not. That's it's one of those weird things where I think that you know it's not it's not it's never simple. And I think, uh, but I think you can you can solve almost everything by listening. Sure, sure. Oh, nice segue. So thank you for that. So yeah. So you you, you mentioned life in uh, the US the, the last. I guess it's been seven days now. Um, yeah. What has it impacted on you? What's life like on the west coast? Um, um, so I often say to people, there are seven, they go, what's it like living in America? I go, there are seven Americas. I live in California. California is one of the seven Americas. I say seven, there could be nine or six. or whatever. I mean, I just think that the American experience is so broad and varied that I'm not sure that, you know, um, it's easy to sum up in one collective sense. Um, California has just come out of a 70-day lockdown. Um, COVID-19 so I think uh, there was a sort of a, an anxiety that was hovering but relatively calm the you know America is um uh, California has great leadership I think people in Los Angeles were really calm about the coronavirus situation um, what's come up behind that the death of George Floyd and the protests and all of that that's a little more frightening we're now under curfew conditions so essentially there are um, army reserve soldiers, they call them here the National Guard, patrolling the streets in armoured vehicles with automatic weapons. The curfew is 6pm. If you're outside after curfew, you have to explain why you're outside or be subject to arrest. Um, so it's a little, it suddenly becomes a little more complicated. Um, I have always said about Donald Trump's presidency, and I think it still holds true about the current crisis in America, is that... Um, Donald Trump's presidency is a great demonstration of how fragile American institutions are, that actually they can be bent to breaking point with far more reason than anyone might have ever anticipated. But I think equally, and this is the weirdness of America, equally uh, Donald Trump's presidency has shown that as much as you bend those institutions, I don't think he can break them. I do think that actually the American experiment ultimately won't fail. I mean, it might burn and it might scream and it might howl and it is right now doing all of those things. But I think that in the end, somehow the institutions will prevail and calmer, smarter, better people will take them forward. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, they say that terrible phrase, what, what a time to be alive. I mean, I feel like we keep saying that phrase because each new, each new month brings some new, extraordinary horror that you know that makes you ask it but it is an incredible time to be watching on the sidelines here yeah absolutely look um great catching up with you michael thank you for that um yeah 2020 is going to be a year to remember for lots of reasons let's um let's hope the back half's a little bit calmer and um and easier for us all to deal with perhaps i i say to people that the if the 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 pandemic of 19 17, I think it was, um, is the touchstone for us in this. There's a really important thing about the pandemic of 1917, which is that there was a 1918, there was a 1919, there was a 1920, and there were many, many more years after that. So I'm, a great, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. People who are frightened of the world, I would always say it's 2020 and it looks really bad, but there will be a 2021, there'll be a 2022, and things will they will get better. They have to. We have to make them get better. Fantastic. All right, Michael, thanks so much. 
keep listening to televisionaries people you find that on the um various websites um run by nine entertainment of course the sydney morning herald the age and um look out for those critics both on those um culture pages and in their podcast speak to you again mate thank you thank you james